The uh, theme for this evening's talk is <coughs> cessation. Some of, you, some of you may be thinking, what's that? So, the word cessation, which is for those for whom English is a second uh, language, maybe even the first, um, it's like a, there's a candle flame and we blow out uh, the, the candle, the, the flame, and there's the cessation of the flame, it's extinction, it's, it's finished. So, in the Pali language, the word for cessation is Naroda, which is spelt, I think, N-I-R-O-D-H-A. And it's an important uh, word uh, in the uh, tradition and I would like to place it in the context of uh, experience, in the context of practice and understanding. If we uh, look at the world and our, and our relationship, uh, relationship to it, we could say very easily that our experiences of life uh, have three primary concerns. One is what arises, second what stays, and thirdly what passes. If you and I stop in any area of our life the things which are important to us and which matter to us, in a very simple and bare way, we will can't help but notice that the interest is around what is arising around that situation, or person, or place, or experience, or whatever, what is staying, and what is passing, what starts, what continues, and what finishes. And any area of difficulty in life, and any area of peace with things, in fact, is through the kind of relationship we have with the world of arising, staying and passing. So when once the Buddha was asked, what is this world? He said, this world is that which arises, that which stays and that which passes, as far as our very um, direct experience goes. So, where there is wisdom and there is clarity, that means not just a, an intellectual understanding, the relationship to the world of people and places and circumstances and situations, where there is wisdom and understanding, is that we are quite clear in our being with what has arisen, what stays, and what passes. And where there is difficulty with our world, the difficulty in some way or other is manifesting through a difficulty in the relationship about what's arising, what's staying, and what's passing. And if you think of the various communications that we have had here together, the inquiries, the small group, the one-to-ones with Catherine and myself, if there is a common factor between all of them, it's that factor. 
One can't think of a situation in life which doesn't engage that. So, finding wisdom in life, in clarity, is dealing with those three faces or those three facets of existence. Sometimes, we say, as uh, one person, it's quite a common view, uh, mentioned today in the uh, small group, and I'll paraphrase a, a little bit, one person said, oh, <coughs> Buddhism has a, um, a rather benign view of life, of existence. Benign means friendly, warm, uh, etc. And to some degree we can look at life and say, yeah, the Buddhist tradition with its encouragement for loving-kindness, for all beings, people and places and creatures and environment and, and the world around has a benign, a loving or caring view towards life. But, as the person pointed out and as we know uh, ourselves, life is not an easy field to live in. It's not as though you and I can <coughs> just direct our life in the way that uh, we would wish, that we live in a world <coughs> of terrible poverty, of uh, earthquakes and hurricanes and natural disasters and all those factors of uh, war and the terrible consequences of war and affecting equally the good and the bad, so to speak, alike. We're affected too by the, the degree of pollution and in our uh, environment and the way that our lives and our sensitive cellular life is affected by so much which is going on around us. So here we are, we're living in a, a world we only have to cast our eyes back over the past century and we say, my goodness, living this life on this earth isn't an easy thing to do. Not easy by the way the world affects us, and it isn't e easily, equally easy by what goes on inside of us in, in our relationship to this world. And so we pass through this world, sometimes struggle through it, and then at the end, there seems to be cessation of it. Extinction. We've, all of us in this room, entered into uh, this uh, millennium, and we may see 2010, 2020, 2030, <laughs> 2040, 2050, getting down there, isn't it? 2000, well, you'll be alright, 2000, <laughs> 2060, etc. Et gosh, extinction. And no matter what you view, you and I may have or not even have about afterwards, we may say, gosh, I am facing at some point, facing cessation for sure of everything which is known and familiar. A face cessation of all that is known and familiar. And sometimes people on, on retreats 
and as well as out of the retreat, have shook with terror at the thought of death. Shook with terror at the at the just the very thought that a percentage <coughs> which is not known for any of us that this life is over. In all of that, so we say, sometimes we look to the future and we say, my goodness, at some point I'm not going to be in this world. And for some, it can be a frightening thought. In this world of what? In this world of what is arising, what is staying and what is passing. And it seems like I am completely in this world of what is arising, staying and passing. So just as everything else will get out of this world, sooner or later, since I, as it were, am part of this world, I'll go out of it as well. And even though we get information that there are now more people living on this earth at the present time than there has been in the entire history of humanity beforehand, put together, that's what they, they tell us, even though the figures keep going up and up and uh, the Indian newspapers are saying now, when we just came back, that in, in the month of May that it will go past the 1,000 uh, million mark. And I remember when I first arrived in uh, India, it was uh, five, they had a census then, 1967, it was 537 million. Now, 33 years later, it is just going past the thousand million mark. It seemed crowded then, that was 33 years ago, etc. So here's this world of people of coming in this world, staying in this world, passing, and it would seem like this cessation. What a world to, to be living in. An extraordinary world, as it were, that we find ourselves in, not through any choice, not through deciding before birth, well, I'll think I'll be born in this place at this time, in this, well, some New Age people think that, but I think it, they're completely loopy. <laughs> and a percentage of living in Totnes. <laughs> Too big a percentage, I love them to bits. Daily Express just recently had an article that said, are, are the happiest people in Britain living in Totnes? <laughs> etc. And who are we to say yes or no? <laughs> anyway, get back to the topic, Christopher. So, there's a, a simple, extraordinary thing of life, of being born into this world. No, no organisation, no decision about it, no sense of, I'm going to come into this world. Yet this extraordinary thing, breathtakingly extraordinary. How do I find myself in this existence? And sometimes when existence is, is a bit more wacky than it usually is and we can't fathom anything out and our minds just can't get a grip on this thing of having been born and living in this world. What a strange thing to have happened. And sometimes, you know, whereas lots of people take it quite ordinary, you know, getting on the on the bus in the morning and, go, and going off, off, off to work or, 
as they used to do, walk across London Bridge with tens of thousands of other office workers in the 1960s. People seem to think it's quite an ordinary, everyday thing to be doing, but there's a few of us walking across that bridge on the way to the office in the morning and say, what a strange thing we're doing. Going off to the office every day. <laughs> and I said, well, perhaps there's something more than office life. So sometimes we look at it, have this strange feeling about living in this, in this world, and as I say, in the, the tradition, Buddhist tradition, to its uh, credit, has said, let's look at all of this. Let's not take anything as ordinary or as normal or as or for granted in any way. Let, 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 there is some strange thing about living, about being on an, an organic thing on this earth and a tiny little uh, creature running around uh, uh, the earth, or in this case, slow walking around the earth. And what, what does all that mean? Sometimes the tradition has said, more or less, this world is hopeless, forget it. It, it, it. It's too far gone. And I rather like that uh, graffiti I once saw when I was in a cafe in London. I went to the toilet and I sat down on the, to the toilet. And on the door behind the toilet was a great piece of graffiti. It said, God hasn't, hasn't forgotten the world. But right now he's working on less ambitious projects. <laughs> and I thought that just sums up this existence. <laughs> so sometimes we look at this world and the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, along with others, of course, has uh, looked at this world, and sometimes the view has been adopted. And sometimes the view has been, this world is full of dukkha, dukkha meaning suffering. Suffering at the larger level, the, the wars, the, the famines, the, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, etc. Suffering at the uh, international level, the social level, the environmental level, the uh, human level, the personal uh, level. And in this world, it's a, a, such a mixture of the heavens and the hells going right on before our eyes and sometimes uh, within us. And with that came a view. And sometimes we ourselves may despair of this life on earth and all the struggle with it. So a view came in which, as it were, glorif glorified may be strong, but which says, realize and find cessation. The world is too much, too difficult, too much dukkha, too much suffering in it. Therefore, so to speak, find the way out of it. For some, the comfort in that may, may be, if I believe in the book, if I believe in the, uh, the figure, the saviour, if I uh, believe in the uh, guru, if I believe in God or whatever, I can then take refuge in that belief 
And in taking refuge in that belief, I don't have to be so involved in the world. And therefore, this will give me uh, comfort. And I have the comfort of um, knowing that through my refuge, through my taking of uh, belief, through my surrendering to it won't be difficult to leave this world because when I die, I will go to something much better for eternity. And that view for many men and women on this earth is still a powerful and attractive viewpoint. Through belief, through faith, through good works as as well. Put all of that together, I can take comfort in the fact I will go to a a better place called heaven or whatever we want. And when the world is difficult, even people, and life is difficult, who say they absolutely have no religion, sometimes will find find them Uh, praying or believing in God or wanting to believe in God some sense of comfort from this suffering planet that we uh, live on in the Buddhist tradition because the, the word God is hardly used for a whole variety of different reasons I won't go into there is a concern with world, with the world. There is a concern with, not always so easy to understand this, the relative truth of things. Very precise expression. The relative truth of things. And in the relative truth of things, the world appears to us, I am born, I am aging, I experience pain, and I will die and everything that I see and I hear uh, around me tends to confirm that. And then the traditionists come in and says, sometimes there is a cessation, a finishing of that. This is where one's experience comes in. Sometimes people report on the retreat, in the retreat itself, or reporting from other experiences in their life where the person says I had an extraordinary transcendent experience in which this world wasn't in my consciousness there was the cessation of this world as I know it and experience it and I really entered into another dimension and that dimension feels to me to be as real and authentic as the one which my everyday mind knows meaning this world of arising, staying and passing so the eye will say, person will say from my experience, I had this experience it was an incredibly important experience for me it was a turning point in my life or, or, or whatever and I really realized, or I really knew, something other. And then it passed, and then I'm back into dealing with this world. And sometimes when the circumstances of day-to-day life are difficult, 
there almost has to be, for some people in the, in the consciousness, um, an appeal, it, it, it appeals to one to have something, some sense of other than all of this that's going on. There's difficulties in what's arising, what's staying and what's passing. <coughs> and there are many, many thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of reports of various people's experiences. And of course, those of us who just going back in time a little bit uh, here, a little bit prehistoric these days, that still goes on, unfortunately. You know, there's a whole drug culture that was feeding. I'm not talking about recreational drugs, but who was feeding on through acid and through magic mushrooms, etc., on having access to uh, experiences of a different kind of order from what the everyday ones were. And some will say, and some report, just these experiences were important to me, and these various drug experiences were a turning point in my, in my life. And sometimes the person will say, I saw the cessation of my ego. I saw the cessation of myself in the human form. I saw the cessation of the life in my body, I experienced my death, or whatever it might, might, might be. Many ways, of the, I saw the end of my mind, etc. I left my mind, I left my body, I saw the end of my mind and body, etc. So, whether it's sometimes, as I say, through the, the, the counterculture of drugs, whether it's through the meditation experiences, whether it happens quite spontaneously or whatever, people do report in various ways these altered kinds of experiences quite different from the norm. Yet, and this is a significant yet, sometimes people say, describe these experiences as a, as a real enlightenment experience. As really enlightened in those moments. If that was the case, I saw the I, whoever the I is, I saw the cessation of all the experiences I've ever had before. All of that seemed very small. I had this very profound experience, this enlightenment experience. I saw the cessation of the world or whatever it might be. If in those descriptions that take place it was genuinely true enlightenment as lots of people uh, do... Uh, re- re- come in. Oh, sorry, sorry. I lost suitcase and so on from people Alright. Fair enough. Thank you. Very good. Thanks for coming. You can come and listen to the talk as well. <laughs> That's why I like initiative. <laughs> Good one. Right. Nina had thought she'd seen the cessation of her suitcase. <laughs> 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 so, there's these ranges of experiences uh, which take place, which often put into transcendence. Those experiences were truly true enlightenment. 
as some people have claimed. Given, certainly the number that I've listened to over the days, and having been on the hippie trail, of course, through the late 60s, on the hippie trail to India, etc., etc., this planet would be a different place. With with so many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of of enlightened people walking uh, uh, around who've had the real taste and know an enlightened and transcendent life because they've had the experience uh, of it, it's been consolidated and therefore an enlightened life is manifesting. So sometimes, as I say, we have deep experiences, we see, we pass through that experience and in the passing through that experience it's there for uh, maybe a short while or whatever but somehow or other the old mind tends to go back to what it was. And then one is just left with the memory of that precious moment, that, that illuminated moment, that awesome moment, that, or whatever, however it might be described. And then there are some, and it may well be the case as you sit and listen here, and some will say, honestly, I've never had any special experience happen in my whole life. Just miss my breath occasionally, I can't say that's too profound, I uh, walk up and down and, and feel a few sensations in the bottom of my feet and uh, I like the taste of the toast and that's about it. <laughs> and so some will report I don't have any of these great experiences which, which take place. Therefore, perhaps I should be trying for it. Perhaps I should be searching for the local dealer in acid and, and see, seeing what that looks like or whatever it might be. No, 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 no. In Burma, when I was a monk in, in Thailand, for a little period, because monk's life has its fashions as well, for a little period um, in the uh, monastery, some of the monks were going off to Burma and there was um, reports uh, of two of the monasteries there where people were getting enlightened after two months. Now the monks thought, well, better than hanging around in this monastery, <laughs> practicing for years on end. Well, it, well, Burma's where it's at. Let's all go off to Burma. And so there was this regular pilgrimage of these people going off to Burma and to the northern part of uh, Burma, Mandalay area. It's known as the uh, area of a, of a thousand Buddhas, something like that. With loads and loads of monasteries still are and, and, and tremendous atmosphere of practice and still uh, 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 going on. In fact, friends are teaching up there and practicing up there at the present time. And Thomas Yost, who, ma- who manages in Bodhgaya, He's just gone to Burma for, uh, I'm just going just for a six-month period. Lots of, lots of good interest in serious practice. So the monks, as I say, a number of monks are going off there to get enlightened within two months. And uh, went off there, and then we'd all be waiting with great interest. 
for them to come back and hear their reports. And one of the reports which was uh, quite consistent was that there would be an experience called, with big capital letters, the cessation experience. This is what you had to get, the cessation experience. So they would meditate furiously morning, noon and night, cutting down the sleep to two, three or four uh, hours, uh, watching the uh, rise and fall of the uh, abdomen, and meditating, meditating, meditating. And when one went to the interview with the teacher, one didn't ask, wasn't asked how your experience was during the day or whatever, but the questions would be, what time did you get up this morning? How many hours today have you sat? And then you have to keep a record. You know, and if you did less than 15 or 16, well, forget it. <laughs> Just. And so you had to have plenty of hours of sitting uh, un- under your belt there. You had to be noting what was happening when, when the rise and fall of your abdomen, um, uh, etc. And one had a rock-like meditation uh, uh, teacher who was never known to smile. In fact, he was only once seen a tiny little smile came when he'd been talking for two hours there and a monk sitting next to him turned to him and whispered and said, lunchtime. <laughs> and in 60 years as a monk, it was the only time there was a slight whisper of a smile from the corner of the mouth. It was that serious in this place. So the monks would come back after two months <laughs> and longer there and report. And there was a report of their cessation experience in which, in a cessation experience, all the perceptions, the feelings, the consciousness, the activities, all the body, everything just stopped went out, like a candle flame, and said, it went out. And in the cessation of that ex- uh, <coughs> experience, obviously there's no movement of mind, nothing going on uh, in, in the mind, and then after a period of time, sometimes minutes, sometimes hours, sometimes 24 hours, the mind and body, this often from the sitting posture, would start to come back in again, and then they'd be functioning again. And some of us thought it sounded like a catatonic state, but one couldn't quite say that. And they would go to the teacher, and then the teacher would say, aha, this is the cessation experience. Of course, so they were completely thrilled to bits. And this is the realization of the end of the world, and that cessation experience is nirvana. This is it. This is Nirvana. So the monks would come back and to the monastery, we'd be in the monastery, then sit in the hut, and then we would listen to the cessation experience. But then, and there's always the then, after a little while, these, the monks who had been and had come back, because we knew them before they went, and we knew them when they came back, couldn't see any difference. 
They were still moaning. <laughs> still as speedy as ever. And didn't say, seem to be saying any more enlightened things than they were saying before they left. I mean, what, what was so important about this cessation experience? Plus, some, and this was a difficulty, and have heard it in various ways over the year, years, there can be a profound experience that takes place, which one can remember the time, the location, or whatever. Really feel it's a really important thing to have happened to one. Fair enough. But sometimes, the doubt comes in later. And then it makes it, in the Buddhist tradition, extremely difficult. Because the Buddha has stated quite clearly, and all Buddhist monks know this, if one has had a true realization of things, true realization, one of the characteristics of true realization is that there is no doubt. And there's no doubt about it. And the Buddha's analogy, which is a potent one, he says, just as in an ordinary person, one has no doubt about colour when one has good eyesight. Somebody says, no, no, you don't, there's no colour in the world. Oh, come on. And there's no doubt about it. With good eyesight, you see colours. It's that clear and obvious. So the monks all know this. So when one has a cessation and experience, it's called, this is called the cessation experience, and then time went by, it was extraordinarily difficult for the monk because the doubt would start coming in. Oh God, I'm not supposed to have any doubt because I had a true realization. And then it became very difficult. Very, very difficult. There are others in the complexity of the spiritual life here who will report, as I said, no experience of anything called the cessation experience would never dream of applying the word the profound to something or I experience God or uh, cosmic consciousness or uh, nirvana or enlightenment or whatever and plenty of people wouldn't dream of attributing or applying a concept, one of these rather highly charged spiritual concepts, to any experience. That may be, yes, this lack of experience, or it may be actually a deep and genuine humility, which in one's sensitivities to life simply does not wish to bring in those highly charged concepts. I experienced God, I found God, I, uh, I touched the ultimate reality, I uh, re realized the, the emptiness of things, the suchness of things, I um, fell into the ocean of existence, or whatever language or metaphor that we like to use. Some will say, no, I have no taste of this, I have no experience of all of this. And yet, despite having no recollection of anything deep or profound happening, the very manner of the way of being in this world is genuinely deep and profound. 
And some who say, I have had a very deep and profound experience, actually are not living a very deep and profound life. And some years ago, because it happened in two consecutive days, and that's why I remember, a person came to my house <coughs> and reported that with a guru, he had had a very profound enlightenment some months before. And I, uh, I wanted to talk about it, so in my uh, kitchen at home, spent uh, an hour, or whatever it was, talking about it with him. And then I said to him, What's, how's your life been since? And he said, well, through this realization and this uh, profound awakening and all that language that he was using, I realized, which is true, there's nothing to be done. There is just nothing to do and there is nothing to be done. Everything is complete already. And in realization, genuine, one knows that. So I said, true. When one knows the true nature of things, you can't add to the true nature of things, you can't subtract from it. It doesn't know arising, it doesn't know continuity, it doesn't know passing, and the true nature of things, it doesn't know any of that. So therefore there's nothing to be done, everything is complete already. So I said, how is that showing in your life? He says, oh, I've just been... Always remember, he said, I've been hanging out and watching videos. <laughs> I said, is that the fruit of your profound enlightenment? I said, what do you think the rest of Totnes is doing? <laughs> Sorry, Totnes, I, but a percentage. <laughs> so sometimes there's a misunderstanding about everything is complete unto itself already, there's nothing to be done, everything is as it is, nothing will change that. The manifestation of it is in that. Next day, someone came to see me, and she said, I've never had any profound experiences in my life, I keep hearing them, I go on retreats, I listen to people like you, and uh, and I hear these uh, other stories of these other people's ex uh, ex experiences, etc., etc. Uh, et and then I asked her about her, her life, and, and also knowing this uh, person. And in uh, listening to her, her life is an example to anybody. Extraordinary dedication to service, deep love of, uh, of uh, Dharma, always available for people, extraordinarily kind human, human being, and that kind of generosity of openness of heart and dedication to others, which is an uh, inspiration and an insight for um, many of us, a really, really lovely human, lovely human being. And we talked and expressed appreciation for all that I listened to uh, from this person. And then I rec recollected 
two different people, one saying I've had this incredibly profound experience and the, the fruit of it is watching videos half the night, and the other says I've never had any profound experience, yet the very quality of the life is demonstrating something very deep, very caring and very meaningful. So in other words, nothing is ever, in these terms, nothing is ever quite clear. Nothing is ever absolutely absolute. All that we can do in looking to ourselves in all of this is to see what is our experience, what is the authority that comes from our experience or experiences, and how does that manifest in this world. And therefore, when speaking of cessation, not, as sometimes the Buddhist tradition in Burma, Thailand, or wherever it might be, is sometimes spoken, what we're speaking about, essentially, is the cessation of the unsatisfactory movement or forces that go on in the mind which are unsatisfactory for oneself and unsatisfactory in relationship to life itself. It's the cessation of the greed, the cessation of the fear, cessation of the anger and the negativities, uh, the cessation of the, uh, the, the confusion, the egotism, the arrogance, or whatever it might be. Can we, as human beings, explore a way of being in this world well and as effectively as we can that puts an end to it? That cessation is the one that counts. That cessation, it could leave the impression, it could leave the impression, well, even if I put an end to this, to that, uh, cessation to the greed, hate, fear, confusions, etc., <coughs> I'd still be in this world, and I'd still be, I would still be subjected to arising, to staying, and to passing. But the teachings say, no, we are not imprisoned to that movement. We are not imprisoned to birth as the arising, living, as it were, aging and pain, and death. That there is the access to that which is called deathless, and what that essentially mean, means is that in giving up and seeing through the or seeing the cessation of the greed, the hate, the fears, the con confusion, it's also simultaneously the giving up of the holding and the clinging that goes with it. and even the clinging onto the idea I am born, I am ageing, I am going to die even the clinging to that idea that's arising can be given up and therefore in the very midst of things of life we can know a genuine liberation and one just doesn't feel that kind of imprisonment to the world of birth, ageing and death. 
Therefore, the giving up the greed, the giving up the hatred, the giving up the confusion touches something very deep and simultaneously liberating. And even though at time to time some greed arises, some hatred arises, some fears arise, and confusion arises, it never seems to have the hold and the grip that it once had because one knows of something which is much greater than arising, staying and passing. We bring, therefore, our awareness to all of this as much as possible to end the holding and the clinging to the idea I am born, I am aging, I am going to die. Therefore, as I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes we, uh, life is living in, as it were, with the relative way of seeing that, that I just described to you. We see really well and really, really clearly with non-clinging, we'll see a freedom which shines everywhere. This life ceases to be a problem. It is only a problem for those who feel imprisoned to it. Those who don't feel imprisoned to it don't see it as a problem. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live a free and happy life. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.